Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He when you show up and you get kitted out from head to toe and you don't have to bring your own socks and sneakers and that was what it was like in the NBA. Kia ora, I'm Sonia Yee and you're listening to Eyewitness and this is Megan Compain. And it was this, this feeling of pride actually. Today she works in advertising as a director at a boutique agency called 81 in central Wellington. I headed up to meet her at the office, walking past a kitchen-cum-bar lined with colourful bottles of gin, some old-school video games are in a corner, and the sound and smell of freshly brewing coffee. Now, basketball has taken Whanganui-born and raised Megan Compain all over the world. She competed in the 2000 and 2004 Olympic Games, but in this story, we're focusing on how she made history as the youngest player and the only New Zealander to be selected for the Women's National Basketball Association, the counterpart to the NBA in the United States. The latest chapter in the history of women's sports, the debut of the WNBA. And yet expect she was born with a basketball in her hands. But it wasn't until I was about 13 that I picked up a basketball. My form teacher was the basketball coach, so he said, come along. My cousins were very good basketball players, and I kind of looked up to them. My brother always gives me absolute crap for this. He reckons he's the one that got me into basketball. He likes to claim it. We played a little bit of hoops outside, normal stuff that kids do. And Megan has always been athletic. She did gymnastics and competed in national and regional competitions, but she quit when she was about 14, realising she was just far too tall. And like many Kiwi girls, she played netball. But there was something about basketball that just felt right. The passion and the love grew from standing in magazine stores and literally flicking through magazines, basketball magazines, to know who, who was doing what and the NBA players and learning from people that went to the States and taped games. And Michael Jordan's Come Fly With Me came out and somebody you knew you had it on tape and it just became, you know, religious. You watched it before you went on a tournament or played for your school. And I think one night a week on a Thursday night at about 10.30, they played one NBA basketball game. So you just had this um, hunger for more and the only way to get more was to, to go over there. So when someone gave me that opportunity, I jumped at it and, and had the support of mum and dad. Even though she was young, she says it was an easy decision at the time. My dad had an accident when he was really young and my mum basically became caregiver and we all care about each other, but uh, it was probably easy to leave because it was really tough at home. And tough at home and tough living in Wanganui. I just had bigger dreams than that. Um, Is it hard to have big <laughs> dreams in a small town? I, I think so, but it also gives you motivation. Yeah, if I had have grown up in Wellington or Auckland, I probably wouldn't have been as ready to you know, run to the other side of the world to see what the world was made out of. So, as a wide-eyed 16-year-old, Megan took the risk to head overseas. She had her career mapped out in her head. Go for a year, return to New Zealand, finish high school and become a PE teacher. Well, that's the advice the guidance counsellors gave her anyway. 
because there weren't many avenues for people who wanted to play sport. Once she touched down in the States, aside from her Kiwi accent, it was clear there was a difference between her and the other players. Here in New Zealand, I was tall. I was always played inside. And as soon as I got to the States, I wasn't tall anymore. I was pretty average. Get to the States, I had to completely change my position because I was one of the, you know, shorter ones on, on the court at five foot nine. Megan got offered her first scholarship in high school in a tiny town. Cape May Courthouse, the town, Middle Township was the school. Very much in the kind of north of the northern states, but the tension, racial tension, was, was massive. Megan has flowing dark hair and olive skin. She's a blend of Pākehā mixed with Samoan and African-American heritage on her dad's side. In New Zealand, she considered herself brown. In the States, they saw her as white. So it's a very different mindset shift. A lot of racial tension in high school. It was the early 90s. The Rodney King situation had just happened in, in LA. There was a lot of tension in a lot of places in the States, and, and that place in particular had quite a bit of, um, of bad racial tension. So then how does that come into play when you're going to compete in a sport that's predominantly African-American? Yeah, I, it was interesting because so I managed to become a bit of a chameleon. I, I got along with the white girls on the team and had a lot of really good friends who were the black girls on the team. I was able to uh, bridge a gap a little bit. So Megan spent two years in high school in the United States before being picked up by recruiters for college. When I saw the big schools where you were in the middle of nowhere and basically the, the schools bigger than Wanganui population itself, I knew very quickly that I wanted to go to a small school in a big city. But then the other decision making was what was the best um, program, basketball program for me. I committed to a school that was in Philadelphia called St. Joseph's University. So it wasn't an Ivy League school, but it was a private school. Back then the tuition would have been, and this was all covered, the tuition alone would have cost about 35000 US a year. Now it would be up over 100 per annum. In my senior year, I got Player of the Year. And during this time, Megan watched one of basketball's greatest legends come into being. A young Kobe Bryant was on the cusp of superstardom. I knew him as a kid, so he um, grew up basically across the street from our college and he used to train in our gym. So, so was it, he was younger than you? Yeah, yeah, he was four, four, four years younger, three years, and you could tell then he was a talent. He was a high school kid, and you'd have a chat to him, and oh, I've watched personally what happened when he was finishing his high school year. He declared himself eligible for the NBA. He signed a multi-million dollar um, endorsement deal with um, Adidas, and then he got drafted into the NBA and traded to L.A., over the course of his career, he played for 20 years with the Los Angeles Lakers and is considered one of the top players in basketball history. And this whole persona of this person, who was a really nice kid, transitioned into this what-gonna-be-like bratty superstar. It was funny because we used to laugh. It was like, oh, so once you declare yourself eligible for the NBA, you can't park your car in a car park anymore. You, know, you just sort of drive up and leave it in the front of like a valet. All of a sudden it became really, really sunny inside and he had to wear his sunglasses. <laughs> but he was still just Kid Kobe and none of the, you know, the rest of the pressure kind of around him at that point. We'll come back to Megan's contact with players like Kobe in just a bit because this is where history takes a turn for women in basketball. In April 1996, while Megan was in her senior year of university, the announcement came through that the NBA were going to form a women's league called the WNBA. 
Um, before that, there was really no professional outlet for women's basketball in the States. Players, if they wanted to continue their career, went to Europe. So when we found out that the WNBA was going to um, be created, you know, you've got 300 Division One schools in the States with 12 players on each team. Um, so every one of them would be you know, with, with players that have aspirations. And then consider all of the, the top professionals that are playing overseas. So that my, my first year in the league... Um, there were players that, if you know women's basketball, they're, they're the Venus Williams and the Serena Williams of women's basketball. It was Lisa Leslie coming home to play, Cheryl Swoops, Cynthia Cooper, um, Dawn Staley, you know, players um, that played for the USA women's team, icons in, in the sport. They were the professionals in the league. So this was us going, mm, the WNBA is starting out with eight teams. There's going to be 12 players on each roster. And there were already some obvious picks for the league, which meant fewer places were up for grabs. So he next thought... You know, who am I? Like, this five foot nine lightweight is and, you know, not strong compared to them, um, senior that had aspirations to play in the WNBA as well. Megan was competing against much taller athletes who'd been playing all their lives. It felt like a long shot. They had a draft and the first... 10 spots were drafted in from those eight teams. So that was the top players playing internationally that weren't in college, and it was the top seniors that were coming out of college. Every team kept two spots open for open trials. So that was my only avenue in. My head coach, Steph Gatney, at the time from my college, she supported me financially and physically getting me around the country to go to these trials. So there was only myself and one other of my teammates that were going for it. Um, we went down to Charlotte, North Carolina, for our first trial, then flew out to Utah for my second trial, and then came back and, and trialled in New York City um, for the New York team. Now remember, this is the first ever year of the women's NBA, and the tension is high. 300 to 400 girls competing for two spots. So players are put to the test. And basically just a weekend of you know doing some drills, checking you out, height, weight, how fast can you sprint, how high can you jump, and then play. You know, you, you've got to kind of wrestle off your own teammates to, to showcase what you can do. The scouts and the coaches from those NBA teams at that time needed to whittle down who, what two players out of that group were going to go. But for any player vying for a spot in the NBA, most have their sights set on particular teams. The WNBA or the NBA announced the teams. Hi everyone, I'm Val Ackerman, president of the WNBA. With the first pick in the 1997 WNBA draft... It was um, the New York Liberty and the Los Angeles Sparks, these amazing cities. <laughs> and we all joked about it, like, you know, anywhere but Utah would probably be all right. You could definitely make do in Phoenix, that'd be kind of cool. Um, Sacramento, right by uh, San Francisco, that'd be cool. Utah, mm, <laughs> not, not so much. And a few days later, Megan was about to make it into WNBA history. And then that night of my graduation, the Utah team called me and told me I'd, I'd made it. So how did you feel in that moment? Oh, surreal, absolute buzzy. Even if Utah wasn't your top pick. So I think two days later I was on a plane back out to Utah. We had um, African-American players, an awesome Russian player, and then a handful, of, like three of, three of us were white. <laughs> And Utah was an eye-opener for this young Kiwi. 
and research by Utah University, close to 90% of the population of the city is white American or European, and at least 50% of the population are Mormon. Supposedly, there is a belief in the, the Book of Mormon that um, black people don't have souls, so they don't, they're not real people. That's quite challenging, particularly when you're playing with world-class athletes who are African-American. Um, but the excitement around a league that was attached to such an iconic um, league in itself, the NBA, got people excited. It was played in the summer where there was a little bit of a downtime for sports, so they got the, they got the formula right. They targeted you know, families and kids and schools and young girls and the gay community and like a different sort of demographic of people to, to get engaged in sport. So the vibe was really exciting. The men... And the and the leagues, uh, the teams for the men's leagues themselves really got behind uh, the women's teams to help promote and make sure that it was a success. So most cities where the where the men's players ended up living, but LA, New York, etc., they would always go to the games. They were sitting courtside, so it was great visuals for television and things to see these NBA superstars sitting front row watching and supporting the women's team. The only two players of note that that lived permanently in Utah were um, John Stockton and Carl Malone. So they were pretty big time back in the day, anyway, because Utah was a good team. Now. When you're in an environment like the NBA, you're socialising with other players. Again, Megan found herself crossing paths with Kobe Bryant. And he would have been training for the summer leading into his rookie year going out to LA. And there was about a month where I came back to um, Philadelphia after the WNBA season to train. And he was training and there was no one else really around because it was summer. So it was sometimes just him and me in the gym in the weight room with his little trainer who was with him till the end. Kobe passed away in a tragic helicopter accident in January 2020, an event that shook the basketball world. Five-time NBA champion, former league MVP, Kobe Bryant died. Before that text exchange, the helicopter had already crashed. Investigators have yet to determine. Very sad news to tell the sports world. The L.A. Times is reporting that retired Los Angeles Lakers basketball star Kobe Bryant has been killed in a helicopter crash. It happened this morning. He's another one that will go down in that, well, was he a brat or was he just competitive? And you can't question that he was an unbelievable athlete with a drive to win, and he did. So he did all that and inspired generations. Speaking of legends, Megan was courtside at one of Michael Jordan's games in 1997, referred to as the flu game. This Jordan arriving about two hours ago. He is suffering from flu-like symptoms. According to a documentary released last year called The Last Dance, Jordan had been struck by food poisoning, although no one really knew at the time. We were at that game, the Utah Stars team, because that was our um, announcement to uh, an introduction. Um, we had just started training, we'd come together, and so at halftime of the Bulls and Jazz game, we went on half court and got introduced to the crowd, which was a massive thrill as well. Um, we had courtside seats, and then after the game, we had parked our cars in the normal um, player um, car park area um, behind the, you know, behind security at the stadium. So to get out to the cars, we had to walk back through the tunnel underneath, and um, so we were going in the back of house and walking through. And literally, Michael Jordan's walking towards me with his, um, you know, two medical staff from the team holding him up. He'd just come from the press conference. Uh, or going to the press conference, either way, but he was visibly you know, nothing to him, and he'd just won the game for them. So 
you can't help walking past Michael Jordan and getting this like heart in your throat type moment. You just get so starstruck. Megan also crossed paths with Canadian player Steve Nash, who today is the head coach for the Brooklyn Nets. Nash is an eight-time All-Star and a seven-time All-NBA, who was also nicknamed two-time for being chosen two years in a row for MVP, Most Valuable Player. He is some player. He is some basketball Unbelievable assist. 14 assists now for Nash. He was um, just cool and that kind of floppy hair Canadian playing basketball out in California. He'd just finished his rookie year. He was a year ahead of me at school. And I actually had a little crush on him when he was in college because I'd seen him at the dunk contest and the three-point shootout um, the year before. He was in Utah for summer league, so he was playing for the Suns. And it's when a bunch of the rookies and the off-contract players come together and they play for um, roster spots. So we were just bowling down to the stadium to watch these NBA players buy for teams and stuff. <laughs> so one thing of, led to another. Look, they basically checked each other out across a crowded stadium. Literally, him sitting across it on the bench, he was asking if I wanted to come over and we had a chat and he invited me to a, a party. And I went and then I quickly left. I had a boyfriend in Philadelphia, so I thought, nah, that's not the right thing to do. But that wasn't the last she'd see of Steve. Years later, he'd end up in her social circle. I I played a season in Germany, and it was the year that Dirk Nowitzki um, was um, drafted. I was playing on the women's team to his his team. So became very good friends with his sister, friends with Dirk, and went out with one of his best friends for about two or three years, this German guy. Then when he went to the States, played with Steve, and they became best friends. We met at an all-star weekend, went drinking in New York with Steve and Dirk and Mark Cuban. This guy Mark is an American billionaire and TV personality. He's also the owner of the NBA's Dallas Mavericks. So yeah, Megan was rubbing shoulders with some pretty heavy hitters. I'll never forget that. Mark Cuban came in and I accidentally knocked over a bottle of Grey Goose and was I had no money. It was what like, is Grey Goose? Uh, vodka. Oh. At that bar in that VIP area, it was about $800 US a bottle and I was mortified and, and freaking out and I said, oh, oh, sorry, I'll go buy another one. He was like, don't, don't worry about it. He just sort of snaps his finger and five more show up at the table. So th- those days where your mind is blown by that kind of level of money <laughs> anyway. And then the following night we were back in Philadelphia and there was a Nike party that um, and Steve said come along. And I remember we swapped shoes and, yeah, it's just random. Now, enough of the celebrity talk. Back to Megan's experience of playing for Utah. Yeah, we were... Sh- <laughs> We were rubbish. <laughs> because it's all about the rankings with basketball, yeah. isn't it? And it's like where, yeah. you, where your team is placed within the yeah. league of other yeah. teams. I would have been the best player for the best team in the league because I would have been able to fill in a, a role spot really nicely. I would have come off the bench and done what I needed to do and I would have been the sort of you know five, six-minuter and everyone loves you because the team's winning. <laughs> but when you're... Not a great player on the worst team in the league. It's a bit more challenging. So I used to average about, um, yeah, probably five or six minutes. Uh, a couple of games I had a little bit more. Um, I did really well in the preseason games when they were a little bit freer flowing and, and looser and trialing things out. And then the coach kind of locked down on what she wanted and I wasn't in the mix, which is a bit disappointing. She was not the best coach in the league either. 
tough season. Yeah, I made the WNBA, but we were a rubbish team and I didn't play very much. So Megan spent a year with the Utah team until injury hit. And then I trialled the following year for Detroit and I ended up pulling my hamstring really badly and I was hobbling around and I made the final cut. I think I got down to probably the last six, but just didn't quite crack it. But there were plenty of highlights and memories that she'll never forget. When you show up and you get kitted out from head to toe and you don't have to bring your own socks and sneakers and this feeling of pride actually pulling on my training jersey with my number with that WNBA badge on it. Like, and your name on the back? Yeah. It was exciting. It was a big buzz. 20 years before it became expected that um, sports were investing in, in female athletes and, and female leagues. So a pioneering in that respect. The pay gap with the men and women is, is still um, astronomical, but it hasn't actually moved on a lot since we were sort of pioneers in that space. Today, women's sports have gotten a lot more exposure, but even though Megan made history as the first Kiwi to play for the WNBA, no one back home really knew it happened. My mum clipped out a little article, you know, today in sport, and it was just a little byline, you know, first New Zealander to make the... NBA, Megan Compain, something or other, but that was it. No media calling me, nobody reaching out, no requests for interviews. But for Megan, it was always about the sport. After her experience in the WNBA, Megan's basketball career was far from over. She'd go on to play for the New Zealand team at the Olympic Games in Sydney in 2000 and Athens in 2004 and sprinkled in between with stints playing in Finland, Wales and Germany. After competing internationally, Megan later went on to design basketball shoes for a company called And One. She then transitioned into sports marketing with Adidas, where she also signed athletes. And these days, as well as working in advertising, she's also a basketball commentator for the New Zealand National Basketball League, or NZNBL. And if that's not enough, she's an elected board member for Basketball New Zealand. Yeah, like, do you have any regrets looking back? And, and is there anything you would have changed? Should have kept my memorabilia. Oh. Should have kept my jerseys. <laughs> you know, it's probably only become more important or relevant now because I have a, a two-year-old. That's when the memorabilia has become important. I think my other regret would be um, becoming an advocate and a voice earlier. I, I couldn't name you probably one athlete that hasn't had a dodgy massage experience. You know, it's just wrong. And so you just parked it and got on with it. And you and can't do anything about it? No, no, because no, it you're vulnerable. Again, oh, you... yeah, now, absolutely. 16-year-old nows know more than 16-year-old me back then. Um, and that's the way the world has moved, thank God. It took too long, um, but let's not go backwards. <laughs> we just got to keep shining the light on bad behaviour. You're listening to Eyewitness, and I'm Sonia Yee, and you heard Megan Compain. If you'd like to listen to more of the series, head to rnz.co.nz forward slash eyewitness or download it via Spotify, Apple, iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. Catch you next time. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. 
and this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.